1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and Christopher, and I'm excited because we're talking about something super cool today. Chris, who we got on?
3: I was going to make a joke about German dreadnoughts, but instead we have uh, Rebecca Gibb, who is an award-winning wine journalist whose previous book it was The Wines of New Zealand, but she's here today to talk to us about her new book, Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. So, uh, Rebecca, welcome to History Hack.
2: Thanks for having me. Feeling a little apprehensive, but I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> you will be fine because the first question I'm going to ask you, just because I can, and I need to know what is your favorite wine. I hate you for asking me that. <laughs> Thank you
1: very much. That is like that, that's like asking someone what their favorite meal is and it can differ. Well, some people like say oh, fish and chips, curry, but no, I think that it depends on the season. Definitely, because I'm not going to start drinking a nice glass of Sauvignon Blanc at Christmas uh, in the depth of British winter. And I'm not going to say a nice big full-bodied red in the middle of summer, I'm at. But do you know what I do like? I like having in my fridge at all times. I like having half a bottle of champagne. Because half a bottle of champagne, if you've had a really bad day at work, you don't feel bad about drinking it midweek. And if you've had a really good drink, a really good day at work, you can celebrate. So Wednesday nights, half a bottle of champagne in the fridge wait it's just what kind enough. of champagne what kind of champagne well, I'm currently drinking this small producer's um what um, champagne at the moment it's by a guy called Jerome Defoe, and he, he was like a very, he's a very small producer and he makes these kind of quirky um champagnes very small it's like just artisanal champagne but do you know what I just like I, you know what if, if someone could give if you gave me a bottle of Bollinger I wouldn't mind None of that Martin Shandon rubbish, though. Thank you very much.
2: I am a predominantly white wine drinker. I don't do red. I used to drink red, but it gives me such a severe headache that I don't do it anymore. And for me, it's usually a Sauvignon Blanc. Yes, any time of the year, FYI, I will drink it <laughs> any time of the year. Or Chris is going to be shocked at my next answer is a good Riesling, actually. Hooray! Mm-hmm. Don't judge
3: me, Chris. No, no, I wasn't gonna judge at all. Uh, I, I was brought up on Niersteiner Domtou, but I can't get that anywhere, so I'm I'm stuck with Liebfraumilsch, which is What? right. Milch, blue nun.
1: It's not even it's not even Riesling.
3: No. That
1: gives that gives Riesling a bad name and it's not even
3: Riesling. What what yeah, is see, that
2: wine? I've never heard of it in my life.
3: Liebfraumilch, it's um I think it translates it says Milk of the Virgin. <laughs> and it Uh, That's why they have a blue nut. That's why they have a nun on the uh, bottle.
1: It's sort of a drink. It's sort of a drink from the sort of the 1980s. It's what I grew up drinking. You maybe you're too young. (laughs) Chris isn't too young.
3: Hey, well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was the 1980s, early 90s. I used to be able to get it quite everywhere. (laughs) Not so much now. Well, if we're
2: talking about uh, 1980s wine, we might as well delve into a little bit of uh, a little bit of history of wine. I'm actually really excited to hear a bit more because. We all know that, you know, Romans are very well known for their wine and they drank copious amounts of it. So let's kick off with the first question. So what did Hervé Durand and the Romans, uh, what, what were they up to uh, at his vineyard? Right. So
1: there's a guy called Hervé Durand and he is not a Roman. He is very much a man who is alive still. <laughs> he owns a vineyard in the south of France. Near, sort, of, sort of far from Neem I suppose and in the 1970s, early 1970s he purchased a vineyard called Master Turel and when he bought it he realised it was all this pottery strewn all around the vineyard he's thinking hang on a minute what's going on here so he decided to do a little bit of digging no pun intended and, <laughs> and got some experts in and it turned out that His vineyard was on the site of a Roman amphora factory. Yeah, so he's got this Roman amphora factory that his vines are sitting sitting on. So they do some dig, they do some real digging this time and they unearth all these these furnaces and such like. And it turned out that way before we were talking about our carbon footprint and lightweighting packaging, they were making these actual lightweight amphoras that could be transported all around the Roman Empire to be filled with wine.
2: Oh, my God, I love that. And you have a factory on, well, in your vineyard. Imagine the archaeological, oh, my God, the archaeological excitement must have been off the scale there.
1: I mean, I, I can't really get excited about time, team. It's something that I usually, it's something that I would normally leave the room on if it were on. Um, Thanks. Tony Robinson and his bearded friends don't get me excited. But yeah, so they started doing some archaeology there and there's now a dig site, yeah. which you can go and visit. And... Her- Hervey Durand took this a bit further, though. Some people would be like that. That's that's very nice. I'm going to continue making my wine, but no, he got uh, he got some real Roman wine experts. Some like, some of the world's most renowned Roman wine experts in because he said, do "You know what I want to do? I want to create a Roman cellar." So he's built a Roman winery because that's the sort of thing that you come home and tell your wife that you're doing. Hey, love, what we're going to do next week is I'm going to build a Roman winery. And then he's taken that step further. He's started growing vines in the way that Romans used to grow them uh, by a sort of a pergola sort of trellis system. And he grows them. And then every autumn when the harvest comes around, he gets his local friends and family in. They all put a toga on. They all go out and pick the grapes, the secateurs, um, and bring them in. Stamp them by four and they make roman what style wines have you tried the wine i actually went and donned a toga i'd joined in in the roman harvest um, a few a few years ago uh, with them on a boiling hot day and then yes i tried the wines and your verdict is yeah I wouldn't hurry <laughs> <laughs> It turns out that there was a there was a. It just turned out that there was a, a Roman food and wine expert up in Newcastle, just along the road down the road from me, who helped me out with my book, who helped me with my Roman chapter, and so I had brought I brought him some back, but um, for him to say thank you, but I don't think he'll have been thanking me after having tasted them. So you
2: don't recommend we go and try the wine? I don't know,
1: uh, you know. The white was made, one of the, one of the wines is a white and it's got seawater in and herbs. And then you've got another one, a red wine that's got honey added to it, which used to be called mulsum in Roman times. It's not to our palates, but that doesn't mean to say it was probably to the palates of the
3: Romans. Oh, grim. No, no one should ever put seawater in wine. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, it depends. It depends where it was from as well. So. There were some Ro- Romans were quite, quite, we used it sort of like as a brine almost, a sort of a preservative for their wines. And it did say in some, some famous agricultural writers in Roman times did say that you should probably draw your seawater sort of from beyond the shore, cause the fetid shores were not somewhere you wanted to drink the water from. I'm grossed out right now.
3: Oh, no, I can imagine. As time team brings me as much rage as you do, as it does you, uh, I'm going to move on to something that makes me more happy. What were the wacky Germans putting lead based sweeteners in their wine for?
1: Yes, lead based sweeteners. So the reason why you might add sugar to cooking is because your wine, your food might be a bit unbalanced. It might be sour. It might just need a bit of sweetness adding to bring out all the flavors. In Germany, in uh, the late 1600s the grapes weren't ripening very well they were pretty sour and you'd end up with a wine that would probably like drinking lemon juice that is not a pleasurable thing to do the reasons why the reasons why that the grapes weren't getting ripe was because they were going through a period called the little ice age it's a really cool period in history very much unlike now with global warming, which is really helping the Germans ripen their grapes beyond all recognition to what they'd done before, they really wanted to turn these sour grapes into lovely wines. And one of the ways that they could do this was by using, well, basically, by boiling down grape juice into sort of a reduction and making a sweetener. And they would reduce it down, and but they would do this in a lead-based-lined vessel. And these the lead was leaching into the, into the, into this thing, into what's called, well, we call it Sapporo De Frutum in Roman times. So basically they were making a, basically a sweet, sticky substance that had picked, had, where lead had leached into it. And that would sweeten the wine, but it would also contain a lot of lead.
2: Can you t- so it's a really stupid question. Could you taste the lead? In the sweets, I don't know what you take the concoction, the sort of the paste.
1: No, it was t- just took on like a. It's called it's called lead salts or litharge. It just becomes it just becomes a really sweet tasting
2: substance. And poisonous.
1: Well, it didn't do you much good. I mean, it might might give you the runs or it might make you vomit at the, at, at best. At worst, it could lead to spasms, um, convulsions, sort of that sort of thing, and death. Here, have a glass of wine. You might end up dead. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, is it? But this happened to a number of, this was happening in in a couple of, in a monastery down in southern Germany in the late 1600s, and, um, they were investigating why that might be, and they thought it might be the water to begin with. But then all the teetotal monks weren't getting sick. And it turned out, and then he was given a glass of, the the guy who was investigating was given a glass of wine and then he got sick. And they thought, hang on a minute, what's going on here? And yeah, it turned out that there, these, this lead that was getting into the wines, it was making the wine sweeter, but it was also poisoning them. And as a result, it got banned. Um, but it didn't really, it kept on going for years and years it's not something that you want to really advertise about your wines that they've got lead in them so people kind of hushed it up and that i mean that that was also happening in roman times that people were making this what we call this lead best con- um, sweetener using lead line vessels from a great production and they were putting it in their wines and lots I mean one historian went as far to say that you know the downfall of the Roman Empire came about because they were drinking too much lead laced wine I mean I mean you may have taken that a bit far in its conclusion but certainly there were papal bulls about putting lead in wine for a millennia before this happened um somehow the message didn't quite get through
3: but but arguably it tastes better than Lieber Prowmelsch
1: I would have thought so. I was more of a Lambrini drinker in my university days. Came in a one and a half liter bottle. Plus,
3: Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> WKD
2: here and vodka. I know we're all we're all guilty of these crimes. <laughs> so there's a question here does Does anything change in the wake of the French Revolution? I mean, hopefully it does, and people kind of stop getting poisoned.
1: Oh, uh, this is this is not so much about lead, but this is more about. In the wake of the French Revolution, there is a vacuum of influencers, shall we call them, for want of a better word. So there is a a lack of influencers. Before you'd had the in France, you'd had the guilds, and they were the arbiters of taste. They decided what was good. You got so basically got a license to be a bread maker or a you know a charcutier, someone who's selling meat but once that happened but once the french revolution comes along suddenly we don't have these guilds anymore anyone can open up a shop or a restaurant so there's all these new restaurants are opening oh. up and there's also not these arbiters of taste you also don't have these arbiters of taste anymore so along come the first food critics you, the people who are, people start writing about food and wine because people are like well where do i go there's all these new restaurants there are all these new food stores I don't know which one to pick. Which one can I trust? So along come these new food writers. So like, like, so it almost becomes like a new, like a Lonely Planet or a Michelin guide. You get all these new writers and sort of the intellectualization of eating. And this is happening in Paris mainly to begin with. And along with that comes lots of gastronomic literature. This is the guy, the guy who comes along who says, "Tell me what you eat, and I shall tell you what you are," which we've since bastardized into, you know, "You are what you eat." <laughs> this is the sort of period when this is all happening—early eighteenth, early nineteenth early century. Pardon. At that same time, this intellectualization of food, and then along comes sort of the intellectualization of wine writing, which hasn't previously occurred. And you get you're starting to get books about what wines to drink. Whether you should buy them from this particular part of Bordeaux or this particular part of Burgundy, other wines from Tuscany any good, other wines from southern Spain any good, where should you be drinking? How should you be drinking with them? This is all like this sort of, this is the very early stages of what we might term connoisseurship, very early stages, however, at the same time, there's a lot of adultery going on in food and wine, so much food. And you're starting to get other people. People are not just writing about where to go and get your, get your best dinner from or where to get your best wine from. There also, there's also this new swathe of literature coming out about food adulteration. And in it, and, and a little, there's a, a chapter about wine adulteration in that as well. So a guy called Friedrich Ackham comes along in the, In the 1820s, 1830s, and he's based in London and he's a chemist and he writes a a tome on food adulteration in London at that time. And it's quite shocking what was going in there. People were just adding all sorts to bread and beer and cheese. People were adding sort of substitutes to custard of all things. So. This is coming along. So there's lots of things that are harmful. But obviously, unless it's noxious to health, the authorities aren't really acting. Now, people, the authorities act on bread. They act on beer because that's something that a lot of people drink, particularly bread and those foodstuffs that children are going to eat. If it's harmful to health, then, yeah, the politicians will get involved in those early days. But you know what was happening with wine? The stuff that they were making wine from faux wine from wasn't harmful to health they were maybe making it out of sloes, or they were using cider and sugar or they were using colorings but they weren't actually poisoning anybody as such um and so it's kind of bottom of the sort of bottom of the pile in terms of priority
3: we've mentioned it already about uh champagne historically though champagne's always been sort of a rich person's drink um so surely there has been people trying to think of a better way to say this than piddling around with champagne and committing fraud with it over the years.
1: Absolutely. Champagne has been at the forefront of my interest in uh, in wine adulteration. I think one of the things, the misconceptions about wine is that champagne is has always been a very lucrative business. It might always be seen as this, this luxury product because, you know, czars were drinking it, um, royal, royal court... In Europe, were drinking it, but when it came to came to the people who were making it, actually they're just grape farmers. Champagne is a very unusual has a very unusual setup in terms of the fact is you don't have wine wineries like you do elsewhere in the world. You have grape growers and you have the winemakers. The two generally don't mix. So the grape growers grow the grapes for the champagne houses and champagne houses pay the grape growers for the grapes and then the grape growers don't have anything to do with the wine so there's been this like a separation of jobs really and the grape growers have always tried to get as much money for their grapes as possible and the champagne houses want to pay as little as possible for the grapes as possible and they have to meet somewhere in the middle In the late 19th century, you're what you're getting, you're getting an incredible increase in the sales of champagne. Champagne sales start booming late 19th century into the early 20th and keep on going. However, at the same time as that is happening, this boom in champagne, you've got a thing that comes along called phylloxera. It's a vine louse, which kills your vines and they and the only way to stop your vines from dying is by ripping them up sticking them on what's called an american root and replanting them and that is hugely costly because you have to rip your vineyard then you have to replant it and pay for all the new plants and then you have to wait at least three years before you get your first crop off the vine not ideal by any any standards so people are trying to eke out their vines for as long as they go along, trying to resist a phylloxera. phylloxera arrives in 1892 in Champagne. And by 1910, almost 40% of the Champagne vineyard has already been replanted. At some expense to these growers who don't really have a lot of, a lot of savings and they don't earn a great deal already. But at the same time, they... um at the same time, these champagne cells are booming. So, how are they fulfilling that need? So, along comes lots of sh- of wine from other parts of the country, or perhaps outside of the country. There are train stations in Épernay and Reims, which are the two capitals of produ- producing champagne. Uh, and these these are uh, these train stations become very popular. There are lots of trucks bringing still wine into Champagne. By rail, it's going into cellars and it's coming out a sparkling wine and it has a champagne label on it understandably if you are a producer a grape grower who has replanted their vineyard and who are struggling to make a living you're not going to be best pleased that all this wine that isn't from your region is becoming champagne because that's depressing the prices that you can obtain for your fruit uh, and just to add insult to injury, between 1906 and 1910, they have four horrible summers where they've got lots of rot and their crops are basically destroyed. So they've got hardly any crop to sell and yet they're hardly making any money from the grapes they do sell because of the wine fraud has been committed by this foreign wine.
2: I don't know how to react to this. I'm kind of sitting trying to take all of this in. A little bit and I feel really sad for these people who are literally losing business and like you said they barely make anything at all Hmm. and they're completely losing out on making something I mean do we know what happens do these people end up recovering do they end up recovering their money or I don't know selling on what do we know anything about them yeah so we do know a bit about
1: them so some of them, a lot of them would go on to get second jobs. They'd go out and help in vineyards elsewhere, uh, to make ends meet, or they would move to the towns. The, the young people might move to the towns. There are newspaper clippings in the libraries at, in Champagne, and they show that the young people often went off, uh, elsewhere. They left, the, they left their villages. Um, some even went off to Algeria, because at that time, the Algerian um wine scene was starting to boom obviously that was French colony and they was going over there to set up a new there was there was work to be had they did come to a head in 1911 now basically the champagne growers the champagne grape growers they took they were up in arms basically and they went and protested um in April 1911 they burnt some of the perpetrator's Um, cellars to the ground. There was, there were floods of wine. There were floods of wine. Basically people were destroying, they were destroying barrels. The French army was called in to try and keep the peace. And there was even a cavalry charge in the streets of Epinay when grape growers and their wives and family all had to take shelter in people's houses because the horses were stampeding down the streets with their sabers.
3: Yeah, no, that's really quite dramatic. I can't remember the last time the French had a successful cavalry charge before between 1911 and 1871. So, um, wine riots—what brings them out on horses?
1: Yeah, it doesn't go—it doesn't go much better for them because Reims, The uh, it becomes sort of becomes one of the key battlegrounds in World War One as well. 80 of the of the town's buildings are bombed during World War One, so. It isn't a great period for this part of Champagne.
3: I have a feeling I'm asking the next one because Alina didn't want to do it. But um, So tell us about a Loire.
1: Ah, Baron Loire is was a fighter pilot in World War I. Yeah. Ooh. But he was also a lawyer. We like that. Fighter pilots. We like fighter pilots, do we?
2: Yes.
1: Yeah, oh, do we? Right, so he got shot down a couple of times. Oh, oh that's okay. Still lived to tell the tale. But after, after the war, he went to the village of Chateauneuf de Pape, which has become quite famous for wine. It's not so far um, outside the town, the city of Avignon. And he married a local girl called Edmy, whose family owned a chateau, a wine chateau in the village of Chateauneuf de Pape. Now, while he was thinking, what on earth am I going to do whilst I'm living in a village in the middle of nowhere? which makes wine. I'm a trained lawyer. Along came lots of the local vignerons or lots of local grape growers. They said, will you help us? There's all this fraud going on. It's not too dissimilar to what's going on in Champagne at the time. Chateauneuf-du-Pape has kind of made a name for itself. It means the new chateau of the Pope. So at one point, the, the Pope had, you know, he had, had a, a, a castle here and vines had grown up around it.
0: That's stamps.com code program.
1: There's fraud going on here because it's well known. It's well known for making good quality wine, and people want to be a part of that. So at this time, there were people who weren't in the village Chateau Neuf de Pape who were like, didn't, who had no, whose wines had no resemblance to the wines of chateauneuf Enough de Pape and was nowhere geographically proximate. They were making wines and putting the the name Chardonnay de Pape on their wines. They were selling them as Chardonnay de Pape. This is before wine was really bottled. though, so wines were being sold in casks and being shipped to places. So there would be people coming down. There would be merchants coming down from Burgundy and elsewhere who had wine warehouses that would ship wine out to other people, and they would just or they would just come and buy a bottle, a barrel of. Of chateauneuf de Pap to blend in with their Burgundy because Burgundy's made from Pinot Noir, which is a very pale color, and they wanted to make their wine a deeper color with more alcohol, more body. So they might buy, buy some chateauneuf de Pap and blend it in with their wine to make it a bit more robust. Yeah. <laughs> if all these things, and then there's be, there might be other people who would ship their. There were other people who were making chateauneuf de Pap from white grapes from Algeria. There was a lot of fraud going on at this time, and they wanted to protect their place's name. It is basically, it is basically Venus protectionism, what's going on here. They're saying, hey, you know, we this is our place, we're proud of it, and we want to protect it from other people abusing our name. And in along comes Baron Loire, and this is what we call this he creates what we later have we later call the appellation system. I don't know whether you have ever seen on a wine bottle, but it might say Appellation Controle or Appellation Protégé on the, a wine label. And that means it's passed, the it's passed, it's ticked on all the tick boxes. It's from this place. It's been grown in the place. Where, it's been grown in the place. It's been made by the same, they've all been made by the same laws and it has passed the test, taste test that it is representative of the place that it was made these laws didn't exist in the 1920s when baron loire and the growers were trying to get protection and he starts he starts creating this system in their village and it is what the whole appellation system is now based on in france uh, and it eventually comes to pass in 1936 that chalonnerve de pape along with cote de rhone and a number of other small regions around france become the first appellations
2: in france and that's they still exist today question you mentioned that these wines so the first thing that jumps into my mind wine tasting in the factory or in the vineyard let's say you have a gentleman or a lady who sits there and tastes every bottle of wine is this true or is my brain just completely making this up and they do it testing in a different way i'm not sure i'm not sure i understand the question say it again so basically in the vineyard when before they bottle cork it and they put the the label on to say that it's been tasted and done and this is the wine this is the Chateauneuf-du-Pape there is a wine taster is that person sitting there drinking a glass of each bottle of wine and getting completely smashed every day or is there some sort of other way of kind of testing this wine because my brain is giving me some other weirdo things are going on in there I'm afraid to say that
1: uh it's a lot more less romantic and bucolic than that. Yeah, everyone sends their samples to like uh, the local syndicat, the local department, growers department, and they'll get taste tested in the lab and they'll also get tasted tasted by a panel, which will say, yes, it's yes, it's this represents what, what the appellation the appellation style is. This does not, and they won't be given the appellation and they might have to put van de France on their label, which some may seem, feel is a lowly, more lowly classification. But some of the best producers in France who make their wines a little less conventionally and do not conform to their um, appellation rules, they have now voluntarily joined Bande de France because they're like, hey, we don't want to make those wines by those rules that were set in 1936. We think there are all these new ways we can make it. And we don't think that, that expression of that, of what you don't think the impre- expression that you have created is what is truly authentic.
2: So they're going their own way. Makes sense. Makes sense. So you've got, I'm going to actually, I'm sitting laughing at the next question because, you know, you've got various different scandals that happen which have a not necessarily the the same name but a similar name which is Winegate and we have a lot of something gate or something, something something gate so it's like it's like a big scandal I'm assuming it is and I'm assuming I'm on the right sort of trail with this what was Winegate well what year what year was uh what year did did Watergate happen oh god I don't I can't Chris Seventeen, the nineteen seventy something, seventy-three. There you
3: go. Seventy something. That's. I was gonna go. I I know Forrest Gump saw it.
2: Oh, for God's sakes. But really. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Rebecca. It's all right. (laughs) Stop laughing, Chris. Put yourself on mute. <laughs> Sorry. So in nineteen in nineteen seventy
1: three, when the Watergate scandal happened, there was also a scandal going on in Bordeaux. It was most unfortunate that the person, one of the well, one of the key, one of the key perpetrators in the scandal was compared himself. Than as, as the Nixon of Bordeaux. So Winegate leads us nicely on from the creation of appellations, because you know, in 1936 we created appellations, that should have been an end to fraud. You know, if you want your Chateauneuf de Pap should have come from Chateauneuf de Pap, your Chablis must come from Chablis, your Bordeaux should come from Bordeaux. However, in 1973 the some members of Bordeaux royalty, like one of the like cele- most celebrated families in winemaking families in the city and in the region, the Cruz family, they got a knock on the door from the auditors and it turned it long and short is that it turns out that they were selling wine from the South France from the Riviera area as bordeaux they were selling they were selling rough reds as to the American market they were basically buying in wine and sending it out as something else in the name of profit they 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 denied this and it was about the same time that Nixon had just first been accused um, in the Watergate scandal, he had yet not been convicted but he was accused and Unfortunately, one of the members of the, Sam, the Cruz family, who were accused of this wine fraud said he would be the Nixon of Bordeaux. He truly felt that he was being he was being victimized, and that you know all would come all would come well year later. Nixon's been you know convicted and resigns, and the Cruz family have been shown to be have been you know done for fraud wine fraud. However, it turns out in the previous year, around 10,000 other fraud, wine fraud claims had been investigated by the wine authorities. And yet we hadn't heard about any of these. So why was it that this one came to light? It became a complete media circus. International, The international media flew in. It was on the TV. It was all throughout the press. Why was it that that particular wine fraud case came to our attention? Well, they were a, a high flying family. So perhaps it was, you know, that was one of the reasons. But also one of their friends, one of their close friends, the Cruz family was Chaban Delmar, who was going for the election, who was, who was in the French election at that. His, um, one of his rivals was Valerie Giscard d'Estaing, who became, who won the election in, Um, um, But it turns out that when the auditors Knocked on the Cruz family's door To investigate this fraud Valérie Giscard d'Estaing Was the finance minister at the time So there are some conspiracy theories About why this particular wine fraud Was investigated and was leaked
2: Read more about it in my book (laughs) Exactly, exactly
3: (laughs) Moving from Forrest Gump to The Simpsons is one of my favorite episodes from the early seasons. Is um, when Bart ends up living in a French exchange, and uh, the French are uh, um, family he's living with are adding stuff to the wine and making it. I can't remember what they're adding, but it's I think it's rat poison or something. It's all very funny; everyone loves it. But I feel the French have taken enough stick for today. The Austrians, though, they were up to stuff in the nineties. It wasn't. So, it wasn't as funny, was it?
1: Well, not if you're on the receiving end of it. Definitely wasn't very funny, but yeah, The Simpsons. It was it was the first series where Bart goes on his on his exchange to France, and he goes he goes to stay at Chateau Maison, and uh, he finds out that they are adding antifreeze to their wine, and they make Bart taste it, and he really really doesn't want to taste it. And while yeah, while. He's on a French exchange. Actually, it was, it was actually in Austria where and Germany where this was occurring in the mid eight, 1980s. And I'm afraid it wasn't an antifreeze that wasn't, was added. That's, it's sad. I'm sad to say that it sounds, it sounds great, but I think a journalist came up with that. They got their ethylene glycol and their diethylene glycol mixed up, which and I'm no scientist, but ethylene glycol is what is your antifreeze and diethylene glycol definitely isn't your antifreeze, but it was diethylene glycol was added to wines to make them, give them that nice sort of oily, viscous, sweet taste, sweet sensation to their wines. You know, in Austria at this time, there had been a lot of mismanagement and they were trying to make, they were trying to make better wines, um, but they were having all these, these massive crops and that doesn't lead to quality wine, I'm afraid. And what they had been previously using to add body and to their, to make their wine seem more lovely was glycerin, but that was banned. Now glycerin is, you know, not harmful to health, but they were told that they couldn't add that. And so they started ad- adding diethylene glycol. This was not a permitted substance and they were doing this behind closed doors. However, one silly producer. Tried to claim for an inordinate amount of diethylene glycol on his tax return, and it's always the accountants that get them. So, and the accountant did bring it to their attention and said, What's going on here? and then things firmly started to unravel. Uh, this it wasn't harmful to it, wasn't actually harmful that hot har- that harmful to health. Some people said it was going to uh, kill your grandma, but it it was isn't something that you want to ingest and there was a whole media circus another media circus around it and Austrian wine sales absolutely tanked and they didn't recover for almost 20 years it's its reputation was oh it went down it went down it went down the it went down the plug hole
2: it really did Okay, so we've got got one more question because, you know what, I'm finding this incredibly interesting. I don't really want you to stop talking, but we also want people to go out and read your book. So we can't do everything, however much we want to do everything. But there's one more. So we've got the Jefferson's Wine. Tell us about that. Or was it? Probably not Jefferson's
1: Wine. So Jefferson, third president of the United States, he went out to Paris in the 1780s, as sort of an ambassador, um, uh, lived in Paris, developed a, a love of wine during his time there. He was called back to the US, um, and had every intention of, of going back, but ended up getting, getting offered a really great job by Washington and ended up staying. Fast forward almost 200 years and a wine, famous wine collector unearths in inverted commas, a treasure trove of wines from the 1780s, from famous names of Bordeaux, and they have Thomas Jefferson's initials on them. This, apparently, cellar has been hidden all that time. No one knew it was there. The man who discovers it doesn't divulge the location of said cellar. So it's like it starts starts with some question marks. Nevertheless, Kip Forbes, the son of Malcolm Forbes, media mogul, uh, buys a bottle of it. Uh, Thomas Thomas, one of the bottles of Thomas Jefferson wines, he pays one hundred and five thousand pounds for it at an auction in Christie's, and this is in nineteen eighty five, no less. Hold on, what? Yes, he buys a bottle of the wine for £105,000 in 1983 that supposedly belonged to Thomas Jefferson. Holy shit. I know I could buy a packet of Polos for 10 pence in those days. So, (laughs) can't now, £105,000 is a lot of money. So there are some scepticisms about the... Because he's not revealing the location of this stash. Uh, But, you know, Christie's auction house, very well respected they vouch for it they have these they have these uh, so-called experts who authenticate it the people who are buying them have no reason to no reason to think that you know it's, it is is fake Rodenstock at that time um is a well-liked well-known wine collector who often hosts dinners and events for at chateaux. he invites chateau owners he invites wine critics He's really chummy. He's even friends with Franz Beckenbauer, the footballer. But, you know, he's really chummy with all the top brass. And there's this thing in the wine industry where everyone's kind of like chummy and mates and they're only, you know, there isn't a lot of questioning of, of the authenticity of the wine. However, there starts there's some rumblings going on and people are going, actually, is this wine that I purchased? A few other buyers have purchased bottles that purchased bottles of this supposed Thomas Jefferson wine. By now, because he's found this stash, and people start to have it tested by scientists, trying to find out a way to, you know, discover whether the wine that's in the bottle is actually what it says it is without opening the bottle. And they start investigating it with like radioactivity and testing and such like. But there is a lack of proof and there's a lack, just a lack of technology to whether they can find out whether what is in the bottle is what it purports to be. And also, if you even, even if you do taste it, how do you know if it's the real thing or not? Because you don't know what, you don't know what a wine tastes like from the 1780s. How can you claim it's authentic when you, 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 you can't possibly do that? Anyway. There's several people sue him and then he sues back for defamation. And this goes on and on and on and on. And you know what? He is finally, he does get, he does get done for it, but he doesn't turn up in court and he sort of disappears off the face of the earth. He's no longer with us now, but yet yeah, it's, it does cast a large shadow over the wine industry and its ability to distinguish what is authentic and what isn't.
3: On the upside, that does mean all the all the wine I buy is definitely not um, fake because it's only like three, four quid in Aldi or something.
1: <laughs> well, that's what people had thought in the 1980s in Austria too.
3: Yeah, <laughs> and today I've learned not to drink Austrian wine.
1: <laughs> no, please do drink Austrian wine. They have now have some of the most the most strict laws in the world. Austrian wine has basically learned its lesson. After the wine scandal occurred, they just ripped up the, they just ripped up the wine law and they implemented a new one, which people thought was overly stringent. But as a result, the quality of their wines is improved out of sight. And you'll find Austrian Riesling, you'll find Austrian, um, Grunewald Lina. They're two white varieties. You'll find them in the finest dining, finest dining establishments in the world. They have truly turned it around.
3: Yeah, they did that. I did manage to pick up an Austrian one a while back, and I thought it was odd because I hadn't seen any Austrian wine before. And it was it was quite passable. It was quite nice. I can't remember what it was, so it's been a while. But it was I remember enjoying it.
1: That's a great recommendation. <laughs> but no, the thing is, a lot of the most Austrian wine doesn't get doesn't get gets drunk in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland in the German speaking countries. So we don't see a lot of it mm. in export. And if you do see it in export, it's mainly it's mainly um targeted at. Restaurants rather than your supermarkets. And that's why you see all fine, fine, fine wine merchants. And that's why you probably don't see it as, because they don't make a lot. They're
2: a small country. This is great. Yeah. So I'm going to be in Vienna yeah. for my birthday. So hopefully I'll, uh, I'll make sure to grab myself a bottle of Austrian wine and take some back. We, well, they have Höriger or Schanken that are places, their wine bars, they actually have vineyards in Austria. I mean, in, in Vienna. Um, oh i'm so hold on when we finish this podcast i am going and checking this out and i'm definitely gonna go wine tasting i'm in you can go wine tasting on,
1: on in the city just like on the outskirts of the city on the hills overlooking the city and vineyards that's it my day my day has now been sorted thank you for that and eat and eat schnitzel at the same time oh
2: yes yes before having an nap <laughs> <laughs> food and drink coma thank you very much i'm ready mm, beautiful
3: it was i've just found that the wine i had was a uh, gruner Veltliner.
1: yes yeah, gruner Veltliner. apparently yeah
3: Yeah.
1: or groovy yes, that's the we, we like to sharpen it too
3: <laughs> perfect <laughs> all right but we've um oh we've covered what a thousand years of wine history today
1: um and it's been really
3: interesting and <laughs> Yeah, a long time. But yeah, it's been really interesting. Um, Could you just remind everyone the title of your book and when it's due out?
1: The title of my new book is Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud, and it's out in the US in October and the UK in November. But you can pre-order the book um from a certain retail outlet. That Jeff Bezos owns.
3: We'll, um, we'll try and get it on the History Hack bookshop as well on bookstore.org slash the links in the description. And then that way, um, you'll get some money from each sale. We'll get a tiny bit as well. And a rainforest based website won't.
2: Oh, yes. Marvelous. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new
3: book.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?